Today it is really good to be back with you on this Lord's Day. I tell you what, I had the flu, and uh, I don't know if it was COVID 2.0 or whatever it was, but it was not fun. And I was out for almost a week and a half with high fevers, and every time I get sick now, it goes into the top of my lungs and stays there for weeks. And tried to preach the following Sunday after I got better, and it was really, really difficult. Uh, I told David coming up, it was the first time I ever felt you know, literally weak in the pulpit where I was just not able to stand. So I don't know what's going on and why it's like that now, but it seems like so many people in our churches get sick so much more now. But uh, I pray all of you are better and that as you go through December and into January that you will stay healthy and that God will spare you from any kind of uh, severe sickness in your families. I know that. Today I'd like to share something a little different with you. I've been going through the book of James in our church, and I broke away this Sunday, and of course I will next Sunday as we gather for Christmas also on the Lord's Day. But I'd like to take you to Luke chapter 12 today, Luke chapter 12. As Mark mentioned earlier, I'd like to talk about the danger of not fearing God. This has been something that's been been on my mind for a number of months now. Specifically, what I mean by that is this, is that we have... um, in our church, a number of young men that go out and preach and witness on a regular basis, as you do here. You have people who like to do that and go out and do that. And we have people who hand tracks out and try to witness, uh, whether it's in what they call in Columbia, Soda City, or in the ball games, in other places that are opportunities to do so. And what I have been witnessing, what I'm hearing e- even from other pastors, is that there seems to be a coldness. Uh, toward the things of God, a coldness toward the gospel, and uh, it's really, really a bothersome thing to consider where we are in our country and where we could end up in the next few months and years ahead. So let me read Luke 12, 1, and I'll I'll take you through this text a little later, but I want to start off here by reading it. Luke chapter 12, verse 1, the Word of God says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they were trampled one another. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light and whatever you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. But I will show you to whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. In the last couple of decades, I've noticed a problem that's becoming a serious problem in our country, a terrifying problem, and it has made me for the first time seriously consider what is going to be the future of this country that we live in. There's a rapidly growing willingness in our culture to blaspheme God and to do so in a very public manner. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's like a black cloud that has settled over our land. More and more are willing to curse God and to mock God in their voices in the public arena and also on social media. Immorality of the most perverted kind has become mainstream and the highest forms of leadership in our country 
are eager to celebrate it and to promote it as normal. And they do it in a public way, and they praise it in a public way. It used to be rare that you and I would hear of such bizarre immorality and perverted things that are going on in our culture. But now, every day, you read or hear of something. And that's not an exaggeration. A few months back, I was, uh, actually came across a TED Talk. I don't normally listen to TED Talk for my information, but it, this one caught my attention because there was a lady on there who was giving her talk, and she was sharing that it was a normal thing and should be considered normal for someone to have a desire of pedophilia. Now, that should shock us all, but that's where we're going. That's where it's headed. In the last week, it's been in the news how Canada has adopted even new laws, broader laws, more permissible laws for euthanasia or medical-assisted suicide. It has gotten to the point now that over 10,000 people in Canada have died as a result of medical-assisted suicide. They say now that you can actually request to have the necessary medicine to take your life even if you are a child and also even if you are just depressed. The sad reality behind that is is that in Canada they have decided that that's normal, that that's the way life should be, that life is not precious, life is not something that we are given by God and so you can take it as you will and you can do with it whatever you will. And then this past Tuesday, the White House was illuminated again in rainbow lights after President Biden signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law. And it's not really the respect for marriage, it's the blaspheming of marriage is what it is. They say that it protects same-sex marriages, which codified what was originally made legal by the Supreme Court. So now it has become law in the United States of America, in all 50 states, that it is lawful to marry the same sex. In that ceremony, they had over 2,000 people in the South Lawn celebrating the conclusion of the signing into law of the Respect for Marriage Act. There were Democrats there, obviously the progressive liberal Democrats, and then there were many Republicans there who were on board and had signed on. That's not a shock to me either because that's been going on for some time. Behind the doors, there's a lot of handshaking and dinners and meetings where they're all on the same page. But also, President Biden brought in a drag queen, a number of them, in fact, in full makeup, dresses, and wigs to celebrate this. Before this event that made same-sex lawful, same-sex marriage lawful in the United States, a few years ago, President Obama commented on the rainbow lights that shined on the White House during his presidency after the Supreme Court had legalized same-sex marriage nationwide, saying, in his words, well, that's pretty cool. During the press conference, Obama revealed that he was unable to view the lit-up White House because it would have been a security issue with him gathering there with the large crowds celebrating the court's ruling. But he did say that it was a moment worth savoring, he said. President Obama hailed the ruling as a thunderbolt, he said, and I quote, Today we can say in no uncertain terms that we have made the union a little more perfect. I would change that 
I would say that today we have made the, we can say with no uncertain terms that we have made the union a little more perverted. Honestly, this should not shock the Bible student. If you're a student of the Bible, you know where this is going. You can read Romans 1 yourself. You know where this is headed. The Bible is very clear that whenever a culture ends up in this kind of moral decline, or really moral dive, that we're under the judgment of God. Not that we're headed to the judgment of God, but we are literally in the judgment of God. Whenever a society is willing to adopt and to practice and to make lawful everything that is opposite of what God teaches in his word and is an abomination, you find yourself in a situation that you know that your culture, your country has been given over to a reprobate, useless mind. But what is also more amazing to me is that how rapidly the churches in America are caving on this issue. More and more unwilling to speak up and to address this, and more and more churches and denominations are becoming affirming of all types of immorality and perversion. Dr. James White said a number of years ago, and it caught my attention when he said it, that this issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality will become the issue the church faces that will determine the true church from the false church. I remember many years ago now, I mean, I've been in ministry for over 30 years now, and I remember back whenever I was thinking, what, what would it be that would bring an apostasy to a church like in America? What would cause a great falling away in the churches in America? And at that time, we were coming on the heels of liberalism that had denied the miracles of the Bible, denied the supernatural of the Bible. There were those that were telling us that what Jesus did in the New Testament was not really real. It could be explained scientifically. There were those that were telling us that the exodus in the Old Testament was not really miraculous. It was the crossing of the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea. All of this was going on. There was a, den a denial of the miraculous. Liberals were telling us that there was nothing supernatural about the Word of, word of God. There was a denial of the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And then there was the continual pressure and push into the churches of evolution. And some of them caved even then to adopt theistic evolution where they would say, okay, yes, evolution and the Bible. God used evolution to create everything over a period of millions of years. So these things have been going on, but never would I have ever considered, in fact, I never even thought of it, that this would be the issue that would be the issue that determines the commitment of a local assembly to the Word of God. And you see, you don't necessarily have to stand up publicly and make it clear what you believe about these issues, but you can become a church that is on the downgrade by simply not saying anything. Because by default, you're saying, I'm not going to stand up against that. I'm not going to make it clear. And so you keep quiet. As the culture, and sadly as the churches and the people who are in the pews don't learn what the Bible says about these things and do not submit to the authority of the Bible and the Word of God. And then if we were to just kind of branch out a little bit from the, the church and we were to branch out beyond that to the Christian music arena, uh, we've seen for the last few years, in fact, a number of popular Christian Artists and singers defect from the faith, walk away from the faith, deny the faith. It should not be any shock to you that 
Christian music artist Amy Grant shocked the Christian community and the world again by saying that she is going to host a same-sex wedding at her home. She has been supporting the LGBTQ community for some time now, and she has a large fan base in that. She talks about hers and Vince Gill's, her husband's, own niece's wedding that will be taking place at her place. And she said, it's an amazing thing that in her family now, they will have the first bride and bride. Grant recalls her reaction whenever she learned of her nieces coming out, as she says, and I quote, what a gift to our whole family to just widen the experience of our whole family. Honestly, she said, from a faith perspective, I do always say, Jesus, you just narrowed it down to two things, love God and love each other. Well, isn't that sweet? That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God says. And the problem is, is that this is the beginnings of what we begin to see as an apostasy. This is a falling away. It's gaining speed rapidly. You remember what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1? Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It says they will speak lies and hypocrisy, and here's the key, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. What that means is it doesn't bother them anymore. What used to be offensive is no longer offensive. What used to be something they couldn't tolerate, now they tolerate. What used to be not permissible is now permissible. And it's all under the banner of love, that God is a God of love, and he wants us to love one another instead of love truth. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to myths. I've read that passage, I can't tell you how many times. I've studied it. I've actually uh, preached it. As I was going back through it again, what caught my attention more than any of it in that text was the word heap up. They will heap up for themselves teachers. The Greek word translated here, heap up, comes from a compound word, episoruo. And it actually means to pile up. Some of your translations that you may have actually translate it to accumulate. I thought about that for a moment, but you know, back in the New Testament times, it wasn't very easy to accumulate a whole lot of teachers because you had a church, and that's usually where you went. Like at the time when Paul was preaching, there was one church in Corinth. There was one church in Ephesus. And if you wanted to go to another church, it wasn't get in your car and drive 30 minutes down the road. It was a long journey. So it wasn't as easy to pile up teachers. Even come through the rest of church history, it's still because of the lack of literature and the lack of the ability and the access to the Bible, it wasn't easy to accumulate teachers and to pile up teachers. Fast forward to our day. All we have to do is turn this on. And we've got access to every single teacher in the world that puts anything up. And frankly, it's sad to say most of it's bad. Most of it's bad. So you can heap it up. You can pile it up. 
And that's one of the problems I face is that whenever I come to church on Sunday morning, most of the people sitting in the pews have already listened to four or five sermons, maybe more during the week. And then I've got to come in behind R.C. Sproul and, you know, all these guys, Vody Bauckham, John MacArthur, and then I've got to try to preach. They've been listening to the best of the best and reading the best of the best. And that's a wonderful thing whenever you've got good teachers. But the point is, is that in our culture, where we are today, where the world is, is you can pile up teachers and be listening to things that are leading you astray. I remember whenever I had my first trip over to Kenya for the mission trip we had over there and we spent 10 days there, I was fascinated with this because we would be driving down the road and you could look over into the field there and there would be the grass huts like you would expect to see in Africa and Kenya. People living in literal dirt poverty. They didn't have anything other than their grass hut. And then there were other places that had better buildings that were primarily cinder block and but one of the most prominent buildings in all of Kenya, wherever you went, were green buildings that sold cell phone data. It didn't matter if you lived in a dirt hut, you had a cell phone. All the people in Kenya have cell phones. They may not have a bicycle. They may not even have the basics of necessities, but they have a cell phone, and they will line up to buy more minutes of data and cell coverage. You say, well, that's wonderful. That's just great. They have access to so much good stuff now. Well, yeah, that's good, but also they have access to all the bad stuff. And that's one of the problems we've had over there is trying to help these pastors in Kenya to have enough theological education to be able to discern between truth and error and then to do as Charles Haddon Spurgeon said to be able to discern between true and almost true because that's where the problem comes most of the time the point is is that Paul recognized that there was coming a time whenever there would be a departure from the faith and there would be many who would heap up teachers that would support what they believe that's the itching of the ears you know, they, they, they're favorable to what you think is true. They don't confront the error of your ways or the errors of your thoughts or the error of your theology. Instead, they come alongside of you and they encourage you and they, they whisper, if you will, in your ear that everything's good and everything's lovely and what you believe is okay. Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, thought the same thing. In fact, um, he dealt with Israel, Israel's defective characteristic they were more than once defecting from their faith if you want to turn to it you can I'm going to read a few passages from Jeremiah and also Isaiah just these two Old Testament prophets I mean I could have spent a whole lot of time going through both of them and also I could have went into the minor prophets but one of the characteristics of the Old Testament prophets is what they're always correcting Israel Israel is falling into sin falling into paganism, falling into idolatry, and God is coming in with his prophets and he's correcting them because of their apostasy and their direction away from him. But I want you to notice something as we go through this in Jeremiah 5 and verse 20. Jeremiah 5 verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah. Now, so God's telling Jeremiah, speak to Israel. Speak to Israel. Verse 21, hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and ears and hear not. There you have it, right, right at the very beginning. He says, you listen, but you don't listen. You hear, but you don't hear. You look, but you don't see. 
You're closed. And here's the problem. Verse 22. Do you not fear me? Says the Lord. Will you not tremble at my presence? That's the problem. They have no fear of God. No fear of God. Notice how Jeremiah attacks this issue. After he asked them the question, why don't you fear the Lord and tremble in his presence? He brings up, listen to this, not the holiness of God, not even the justice of God, not the righteousness of God, but the power of God to create, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. So he says in verse 22, do you not fear me? Will you not tremble at my presence who has placed the sand as the bounds of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though the waves toss to and fro, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they are not able to pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart and they have revolted and departed from me. They do not say in their heart, verse 24, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of harvest. He says, your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. In other words, the people of Israel are even worse than the pagans. They've gone so far away from God. And then notice in verse 28 again, the latter part of that verse, they do not plead the cause, that is, they don't plead the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper And the right of the needy, they do not defend. And I couldn't help but think of the evangelical embarrassment of the Church of America standing up against abortion. I mean, think about this. I think the last time there was a large crowd at the State House of South Carolina was whenever Jeff Durbin came in, and we had about 500 there. That's the largest crowd I've ever seen. The first time I was down there was maybe 100. And so we, we talk about, oh, we don't, uh, we don't agree with abortion. And, oh, yes, we are willing to defend the helpless. And, oh, yes, we want to support those that are fatherless. And there should be not 500, there should be 200,000 and more. I mean, we can talk about Israel and what they have done and how they have rejected the defenseless and how they have not pleaded the cause of the fatherless. Yet the evangelical church is just as guilty. Just as guilty. Just saying words is not what Jeremiah is talking about. He's talking about action. Action. And I thought about also the preachers that are unwilling to speak out on these issues. I'm talking about all the issues I've covered so far. Absolutely unwilling. They are quiet. Their mouth is shut. They will talk about everything and anything other than those things. It's amazing as Jeremiah points out here in verse 30, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. 
The priests rule by their own power, and my people, here it is, love to have it so. They like it. It's good. It's comfortable. It's comfortable. It's easy. I had someone tell me this past week that they didn't want to come to our church because they didn't feel safe there. It's too clear, too much truth. So they had to go somewhere where they felt safe. Jeremiah chapter 10, there's another portion there in verse 6. It says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might, who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due, that is to be feared. For among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they, Israel, are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. Thus, verse 11 says, You shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish, and the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of the treasuries. I don't know if you caught it. He's doing exactly the same thing he did earlier where he's telling you that they don't fear God and they don't fear the creator. He goes back to that over and over again, the creator. He's not talking about the holiness or the justice or the righteousness of God. He's saying, listen, God is creator. He's the one who made you and he made the earth that you walk on and yet you don't fear him. That's incredible. It's incredible. They saw and have seen and witnessed and read of the judgments and the power of God, and yet they don't fear him. Verse 14 says, everyone, everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. You turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah dealt with the same problem with Israel. And I can't go through all of it for the sake of time, but I just highlight a few things in chapter 5 to begin with. In Isaiah chapter 5, he's dealing with a rebellious, sinful godless group of people in Israel. But the imagery that God chooses to use here through Isaiah to help us to understand what God has done for Israel is amazing. He calls Israel, that is, God calls Israel his vineyard. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he talks about this vineyard that has been planted on a very fruitful hill in verse 1, that God dug it up and cleared out the stones and planted it with the choicest of vine, and he built a tower in the midst of the vineyard and he made a wine press there in other words God did all that he could do to make the vineyard prosper gave it all the right things and behind all of that is what God has done for Israel he's given them not only the law he delivered them from Egypt he gave them the law he gave them the tabernacle the temple the sacrifices and you've got to understand within the context all the other pagan nations didn't have this they were the chosen of God they were the ones that were given by God's grace a tremendous blessing of knowing God, having his word, and having his law. And actually even been given the commandments of how to have access to this God, which is an amazing thing. 
So you would have expected that Israel would have returned with a great deal of obedience, loyalty, love, devotion, commitment, and all of that. But instead, they returned to God, rebellion, degeneration, godlessness, immorality, drunkenness. It goes on and on. He says in verse 2 of Isaiah 5, So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes or sour grapes. That's the Hebrew word bu'ushim. The word bu'ushim means sour grapes, but one lexicon said stinky grapes. Bad fruit. He gave all that he could to Israel, and Israel produced sour, worthless grapes. He even says in verse 3, God does. And now, all inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done? What more could I have done? In other words, there's nothing else I could have done to give you all that you need to be loyal and devoted and committed and holy to me. Verse 5 says, but now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. This is not good. He says in verse 5, I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. I'll break down the wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, and there shall come in briars and thorns. In other words, God's going to lay it completely down and destroy it. He says, I will command the clouds not to rain on it any longer. For the vineyard of the Lord, verse 7 For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He said he looked for justice, and he only found oppression. He looked for righteousness, and he only found distress or a cry for help. In other words, everything that God would have expected, he didn't get. He got the opposite. I can't help but think of the privileges and the blessings that we have had here in America, an early start founding on the word of God and yet we've drifted so far that now the very place where there is scripture literally carved into the stone in Washington DC they would light up with rainbow lights do you think that bothers God think God cares at all Do you think that you can mock God and get away with it? Do you think that you can just raise your fist to heaven and tell God to leave? No, absolutely not. In fact, what happens in Israel is exactly where we're headed, if not already there. Isaiah talks about a number of curses because of their immorality and their sinfulness. It comes on them. The judgment of God comes on them in verse 8 because of their, immor- their materialism or the sin of materialism. Verse 8 says, Woe to those who join house to house and field to field. Nothing wrong with having a house and nothing wrong with adding an addition. But the point was they were adding more and more and more and more. They were doing it over and over and over again. They were consumed with materialism in the land. And then also in verse 11 it talks about that they were controlled by lust and drunkenness. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning and that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue until the night, till the wine inflames them. In other words, not only start in the morning to get drunk, but get drunk all day and stay all drunk all night. 
And then also there's the endless pursuits of sin. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as is a cart of rope. And what is the imagery behind that is, is not only are you involved in your sin, but you love your sin so much, you're, you're pulling it around with ropes and carts. You've got it full and you keep your carts with you. Consumed with it. Verse 20 says that they are given over to perversion of morality. This probably hits home, especially in our culture today. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The word good is the word tov in the Hebrew text. It means that which is pleasant, agreeable, beautiful, beneficial, and also it's translated many times in the Old Testament better. The idea is that those who are in Israel at that time were calling evil better or more beneficial. Instead of good, they were calling good evil and evil good. That's exactly what we're seeing today. It's the complete reverse of what morality is and right and wrong. Wrong is right and right is wrong. Godliness is forbidden. Was it just recently where we saw uh, the gentleman who went into one of the libraries to try to read the Bible and was forbidden to do so? Yet they can bring the drag queens in and read the Bible, not read the Bible, but read their little stories to the children. What is good is evil, and what is evil is good. It says in verse 20, and they put darkness for light and light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's completely on its head, completely on its head. And then there's the pride of self-sufficiency in verse 21. What are those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight? This is the idea that we don't need God. We don't need his word. We don't need his wisdom. We don't need his commandments. We can figure this out on our own. We don't need him at all. We have the corruption of the legal system in verse 23. Those who justify the wicked for a bribe, they take away justice from the righteous men. This is your leadership, your government that literally is consumed with injustice and bought out with money. I think it was MacArthur who said a few years ago that if the government ever told the truth, it would collapse. It's built on lies. It's built on lies. But then as a result of all of this, God says he's going to bring judgment. He's going to judge Israel. Verse 24, therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so the root will be in its rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the Holy One of Israel. Verse 25, therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. One of the most precious thoughts in all of the Bible is this, that God is immutable. He doesn't change. That's beautiful. I mean, because for me, it tells me that what God has promised and what God is and his holiness and his righteousness and his grace and his mercy doesn't change. Therefore, my eternal state is bound up literally and secure in the character of God. But also, God is immutable in his justice and his holiness. And if God will react to his own people Israel this way, what will he do to us? What will he do to this nation? Well, according to this text, God's going to judge them. And how is he going to do it? He's going to bring a nation from afar to do it. Look at it in verse 26. 
God will lift up a banner to the nations from afar, and he will whistle to them from the ends of the earth. Surely they will come with speed and swiftly. In other words, God's going to raise up nations to come to literally destroy Israel and take them into captivity. You know, I made a statement this morning in our early our service at church. I said, you know, in America we have one of the strongest militaries on the planet. Following that service, I had a man come up to me who was a career naval person. And he said, you know, I, I, would used, to, I used to say that. He said, but now our, our Navy and our, our armed forces are so consumed with woke ideology, I can't say that we're strong anymore like we used to be. It's a good point. You know, we may not have ships off the shore or bombs coming overhead, but I grant you, God can destroy this nation. And he may destroy it just from some of the most bizarre things we've ever thought about. It could just simply be an ideology coming out of the universities, as we've seen. It could be many ways in which he does it other than actually having someone come over in tanks and ships and bombs. He could destroy it a number of ways. In my own personal opinion, I believe he's already at work with it. I believe we're witnessing it right now. We are those that are sitting on the front row, if you will, witness to what's going on here. But this is not the end of it all. God's going to bring a judgment. He's going to bring nations to judge Israel and to take them into captivity. But this is also a time whenever one of their most familiar and long-lasting kings dies. King Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 tells us that in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. In other words, you have a king who's been there for so long and he dies and the country seems to be now so much in instability yet Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in his sovereign throne ruling and reigning Isaiah sees the holiness of God you know the story there you've read it many times but in that same context if you'll remember after Isaiah has seen and been witness to the holiness of God and then he's overwhelmed with his own sinfulness and then he's purged of that sin and atoned for God asks the question Who will go for me to this Israel? Who will go for me to this rebellious people that I have chosen? And you know what the answer is. At the end of verse 8, Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. And I can imagine, much like some people have tried to characterize Martin Luther's words whenever he stood before those in his day, that Isaiah would have probably said something like, here I am, I'll go. He's in complete witness of the power and the awesomeness of God and the holiness of God. And now he's been cleansed of his sin and he says, I'll go, I'll go tell him. Well, what are you going to tell him, Isaiah? God tells him to tell them, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Their ears are heavy Shut their eyes that they see, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Listen, he's telling them to go tell them you're going to be judged and you're never going to know the truth. It's over. This, by the way, is quoted over in Matthew, not Matthew, but John chapter 12. It's the conclusion of the public ministry of Jesus Christ when he, he says to Israel of that day that God has judged you now. 
You will hear, yet you won't hear. You will see, yet you won't see, lest you are able to turn. In other words, God is going to confine them right in their unbelief, right in their rejection. In other words, now the opportunity to repent and to turn is over. MacArthur said a few months ago, in fact, maybe a year ago or so, he was talking about the judgment of God on this land based upon what it teaches in Romans chapter 1, having been given over to a reprobate mind. And he said, you know, that he was always wondering what a reprobate mind would look like. And he said, finally, whenever he started seeing that, you know, that a woman's not a woman and a man's not a man, and we were supposed to accept that as reality, that there you have it, what a reprobate mind really looks like. And he said, They're not, we're not looking forward to judgment or expecting judgment. We're in judgment. And once judgment starts, it doesn't stop. The idea behind the imagery is almost as if the fire is falling out of heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah and it's halfway through the atmosphere and it, you can't stop it now. It's, it's over. It's, it's here. It's coming. Just like what happened to Israel in their day. They were given opportunity after opportunity to repent and instead they rejected the Lord. They rejected his law. They did not fear him. God judged them. He shut their eyes. He shut their ears. They cannot hear. And they're judged. And there's only one reason why this happens. Only one. And it's found in Jeremiah's words. Do you not fear me? Do you not fear me? Will you not tremble at my presence? Listen, there is nothing more devastating to a country or a people or a person than whenever they have no fear of God. Nothing. Because if you're unwilling to have fear of God, you open the door to every form of evil. You open the door. It is also sobering to think that this lack of fear of God is natural to the sinner. That's a natural thing. In fact, if you read what it says in Romans 3, when it gives us the whole list of the condition of man and his depravity, it says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. There's none good, no, not one. They've all turned aside. They're like an open tomb. Their mouth is like those that have snakes under their lips. They have cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift and eager to run after bloodshed, destruction and misery in their ways. With the last phrase should catch our attention there is no fear of God before their eyes that's the reason why all the others true there's no fear of God one translation says they have no fear of God to restrain them and that's exactly what we mean by that is that the fear of God is what restrains us from going head first into evil and sin in fact, the Bible even says that in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. It says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It says in Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. You say you really fear God? You say you really do fear him? Then hate evil. Proverbs 16, 6 says, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. This is repeated over and over again. Solomon summed it up in the book of Ecclesiastes whenever he said that here's the conclusion of the matter he says fear God and keep his commandments Job was pointed out 
by God to be a man, according to the text in Job 1.1, to be a blameless man, an upright man. And then it says, fearing God and turning away from evil. Fearing God and turning away from evil. That is the means by which God has given to us to turn from evil and to keep us from falling headfirst over into the worst, worst forms of evil and sin. John Calvin wrote, The fear of God is a bridle to restrain our wickedness. So when it is lacking, we feel at liberty to indulge in every kind of licentiousness. Charles Hodge, that great theologian, said these words, The fear of God we may understand according to its use in the scripture as the reverence of God, piety toward him, or fear in the more restricted sense of dread of his wrath. He says, either way, the reckless wickedness of men proves that they are destitute of all proper respect of God. They act as if there is no God, no being to whom they are responsible for their behavior and who has the intention and power to punish them for their iniquity. You see, some think that it wasn't that big of a deal whenever we started taking the word of God out of the public square. You know, no big deal that we removed the Ten Commandments here or there. No big deal that prayer was taken out of schools. No big deal that no longer was the Bible honored in any fashion whatsoever in our schools and universities. That's not that big of a deal. We can make it through. We can do okay. We are now a nation that does not fear God. We don't fear him. We have no fear. We raise our fists to God every single day and blaspheme his name. And it is just a matter of time, folks. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of time. How it goes down, only God knows. But I can tell you this, it's going. It is going. Let me share with you one other point or a couple of points quickly. I want to take you to our passage just for a few moments. And I'm, I'm not going to do an exposition of this because I just want to share a few thoughts about it. It really speaks for itself. I could read it and go home. But I want to point out a couple of things here. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. You know the passage we just read earlier, Luke 12, 1. It says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. Now, that's, that's pointed out for a reason, okay? Because what it's telling us is this. The word innumerable comes from the Greek word myrios, or we get the word myriad from it. In the lexicon, it means 10,000. So the idea is, is that this is not just a small group of people. This is 10,000s of multitudes. That's the idea behind the word. In other words, this is a huge group of people. So large, it even says here, that they were trampling over one another. And Jesus is speaking to this crowd. Now, I can't even imagine how in the world he's speaking to them and that everyone can hear. Uh, maybe something like George Whitfield, where he could preach and people could hear him miles away. However it worked out, the Lord made sure they heard the word of God. But the point is, is that this is the largest crowd, at least recorded in the New Testament, that Jesus ever spoke to. There's tens of thousands of people from Israel there that day as he's speaking. And so you might ask the question, you know, if you had that large of a crowd, what would be the number one message that you would want to communicate to these people? If you had that many people willing to come and listen to you, what would you tell them? Well, I'll tell you what Joel Osteen would say. He would say, God loves you. 
and he has his best for you. That's not what Jesus said. He said, fear God or you're going to hell. That's what he said. Fear God or you're going to hell. Jesus wouldn't last too long in the churches in America. He wouldn't. He had the largest crowd he's ever had, and the one thing that came to his mind was, you need to fear God. Because obviously, based upon the hypocrisy of Israel and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, you don't. You don't. That's why he says in verse 1, he says, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, and the word disciples is a broad word. It could refer to just the 12, but I believe it's larger. The word mathetes here could just refer to the learners that were following him beyond the 12. But he begins to give them warning to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which he describes here as hypocrisy. In other words, what permeates and eventually destroys is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. What was that hypocrisy? It was all external. It was not internal. Internal, they were full of sin, rebellion, lawlessness. Externally, they looked so beautiful and white and pretty and righteous. And it was hypocrisy. They wore their mask everywhere they went. That was his point. So in verse 2 it says, Jesus tells them why. You need to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. Why? Verse 2, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. In other words, there's nowhere to go to hide the true intent and thoughts of your heart. Nowhere. I remember many years ago now, even when I was a child, I was in a Christian school being raised, and I used to have this fear, at least a thought in my mind, that was back whenever they had drive-in theaters. I used to have this fear that whenever you finally got before the judgment of God that there was going to be this big screen and all of your life and all of your thoughts and all of your bad things you were doing, even as a young child, were going to be on that big screen for everybody to see. Well, that's not true for a believer. But for the unbeliever and the hypocrite, the Bible says everything's exposed. Everything's exposed. Nothing's hidden. The deepest, darkest thought that you have the most simplistic one-word, two-word thought that you may think is incidental, but yet is in rebellion to God, is revealed. It is revealed. He says in the text here, therefore whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. In other words, nothing escapes the omniscience of God. Nothing escapes God's knowledge of everything in your life. Every thought, every word, every deed, and what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. The inner rooms were the, in some houses at least in that time, they had inner rooms that were smaller rooms on the interior of the house where they would keep their valuables. Or, in some cases, if you wanted to have a private conversation, you needed to get, around, get away from the public or the family, you could speak to one another in the inner room. The outer walls were constructed of mud, brick, and stone and wood and could be easily dug through by a thief but the point was if you're going to keep your valuables you kept them in the inner room behind that is the idea of secrets secrets are kept in the inner room and here what jesus is telling us it doesn't matter where you say it what you say and how you say it it's all exposed it's all exposed every private conversation every prayer every act in hypocrisy Every evil thought, everything you've ever done, ever said, is fully, completely exposed to the light. Verse 3 says, 
Everything spoken in the dark is heard in the light. Everything. The most private of conversations. One author said this, it is this exposure that makes hypocrisy useless in the long run. No, you may get away with it for a while. You may put the mask on for a while, but God knows. God knows. And here's the reason why we should be careful of this. Look at verse 4. And I say to you, my friends. Now, I think this is important. He uses the word my friends there, which you get a sense of the pastoral nature of Christ, that he's still a shepherd to his people. And he's calling on them and he's telling them, listen, you need to understand the serious nature of this conversation I'm giving you. You need to understand that you're literally facing the very God who created you and has the power to take your life and to cast you into eternal hell. He's calling on them. As a pastor would call on his people, as the shepherds of Israel would call on them, as the prophets would plead with them to come back to God. He says in verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who would kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. In other words, as the threats would be given from those around them because of their purity of heart and their willingness to follow God and to expose evil, he says, don't worry about the people who can kill the body. That's all they can do. They can kill you once, and that's it. They can put your body in the ground, but that's it. But the point is, that's all they can do. They can only kill the body. They cannot affect the soul. Verse 5 says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him. Now, this is something that's not popular today. I've heard this so many times in evangelical circles now that we as believers should not fear God. I hear that. And they say we should reverence God and respect God. And I get that. The word is used that way a number of times in the New and the Old Testament. But the Bible also teaches that there should be a healthy fear, even of the believer, of the power and sovereignty of God. He's not just some wimpy man up on the throne. He is the creator of the universe and the creator of us. So Jesus says, fear him who after he has killed, and I thought that was interesting because it's acknowledging that God is the one who has the authority to kill. He can take your life right now if he so chooses. He can take mine. He owns it, not me. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power. The word is exousia. It means authority to cast ekbalo, to cast out into hell. And the word hell here is the word Gehenna. You know that word. I'm sure you've heard it before. It refers to the Valley of Hinnom. That was an actual place outside of Jerusalem where it was recognized to be the original location of the apostate Jews sacrificing their children and burning them alive to the false god Moloch. Later, Josiah, the godly king, came in, defiled the place, destroyed it, and made it a dump. And that's where the garbage dump was outside of Israel then. So whenever you wanted to get rid of your garbage, or in some cases, some say that there were dead animals, and even some cases, some criminals that were unwanted that were put out there, and the fires would burn constantly. In that place in the Valley of Hinnom, it was a perfect picture of the devastation, destruction, and eternal flame of hell. And that's what Jesus picks up on. 
He basically tells them, listen, you need to be worried about not the man next to you that can take your body, but you need to be worried about the God who can take your body and cast you into eternal hell forever. That's the one you need to fear. So if you want to fear the right one, fear God. And by the way, you notice in verse 5 it says that it is God who has the exousia, the authority to cast into hell. This is not Satan's authority. This is God's. Satan is going to be one who will occupy hell as one that is put there by God. Eventually, he doesn't have the authority, doesn't rule hell. As so many people in our culture want to try to communicate that God, that, 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 that the devil does. The devil is an evil being who will be prosecuted and justly put in hell just like all the other rejectors of God. One last thought, and I'll close with this one. And that is the priority of fear. Look at chapter 13, Luke 13. This is the same crowd he's talking to. We may have a chapter division, but it's the same group. Same group. Innumerable group of people. And at this time, it says in chapter 13, verse 1, there was there present at that season, at the time that he was talking to them in chapter 12, some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This was not uncommon. Pilate was a very evil man who looked for popularity. Uh, he ruled 26 AD to 36 AD, but he was um, a man without values. And if it would look politically good for him to do this, he would do it in an instant if he needed to slaughter some of the Jews. Uh, so in this case, we don't know any more about it other than the fact that there were some Galileans that apparently Pilate came in and he slaughtered and their blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. We don't know if that was the daily sacrifices or Passover. It could have been that time since there's more people there. It would have caught the attention of many. Anyway, so these bring up this situation where the Galileans were slaughtered by Pilate. It seems like, obviously, not in a just way. It was an act of injustice. It was an act of uh, crude savagery by Pilate. And so Jesus answers and said to them in verse 2, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? You say, where did that come from? Well, it came from their theology. Because in those days, what they did believe is if you suffered such a tragic event in your life or you were given a terminal sickness or blindness or whatever, it was because you had sinned. You remember John chapter 9, the man born blind? The first question that comes up, is this man born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And the counselors that Job was given in the Old Testament, remember that? They kept bringing it up. You know, look, Job, you got something going on here, buddy. Something's hidden. You got some sin in your life. God's judging you. So here's the same theology that's kind of pervasive through Israel, that if you see something happening tragic and someone is slaughtered indiscriminately in an unjust way, obviously God was judging them for something. So Jesus asked the question, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? What does Jesus say in verse 3? No. No, they weren't any worse than any of you. But then Jesus says this, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. You're going to die. You're going to die. And then verse 4, either they brought it up and Jesus answers it, or even Jesus brings it up. Verse 4, 
Or what about those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? It's referring to probably a tower that was erected by the aqueduct system of Rome whenever they were actually feeding off the waters near the Pool of Siloam. And by the way, they found the Pool of Siloam, if you ever want to look it up. It's a lot larger than what many would think. But anyway, the Gihon Springs would actually feed that from the Kidron Valley. And apparently there was a tower that was erected there, and it fell over and killed 18 people. Suddenly, unexpectedly, they weren't doing anything wrong. At least the indication of the text is. And Jesus says, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men? Did, do, do they deserve it because they obviously were involved in some gross immorality? And he says, what? You know the answer. No. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. What's Jesus saying here? Why does he even bring this up again to the same crowd that he just told them to fear God Fear the one who can cast you into hell. And also, let me remind you of this, that you're no better than any other sinner. And they perished, and you're going to perish if you don't repent. Man. And what Jesus was hammering home to them is, look, you're going to die just like they died, and you have no control over it. No control over it. There's no need to worry about it, but there is a need to worry about fearing God. And repenting of our sin, being ready to meet him at any given moment, because we will, one day, very soon, we will meet him. Let's pray together, and as we do, I want you to begin to prepare your heart for the reception of the Lord's Supper, and David will come and lead us in that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for this time together today, a blessing to gather together with your people here. Lord, I pray that you would produce in our heart the fear that you desire, that yes, we would have reverence, yes, we would have respect, but that we would fear our creator, the power of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the one who has the ability to give us breath or to take that breath away the one who enables our heart to beat the next beat. And Lord God, I pray that you would produce in us a God-fearing people who are eager to learn and to devote and to love and to obey your word and are also just as eager to turn away from evil and sin and to honor you in all of our lives. I pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.